welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Writers Toolshed. I'm your host, Richie Belling, and today I'm delighted to introduce the first of a brand new uh, feature of the podcast and also of our writing community, Panels. Once a month, we host a panel discussion in our Discord server, uh, and we invite a very special guest to help us unpack a particular subject. A few weeks ago, we were delighted to be joined by the brilliant Stephen Ayan, who joined us to talk all about world building and a bit about his new book, The Judas Blossom. Also joining me were three members from our community who also featured in our last episode, Josh, Isa, and Johnny. Panels take place once a month. And the next one is going to be on the 25th of June with literary agent Laura Bennett. So if you would like to come along to the live events where you can ask questions of Laura and the other members of the panel, then just click the link in the description to join our community. You'll get a few emails in there. In one of those emails will be a link to our Discord server and all the panels take place there. Today is the recording of the panel with Stephen Ion. So if you are looking to brush up on your world building and want to see how one of the top authors of the moment is creating their world, stick around. It's going to be packed with insights. Just a quick reminder to subscribe or follow the show. And that's just so you don't miss any episodes when they come out. If you like what we're doing and want us to do even more a quick rating on spotify mobile app or on itunes is very appreciated it tells us number one that we're doing something right and then we'll keep on doing more and two it helps other people find the show which is very very important (laughs) and you can also help us do that by sharing this on social media or with anyone who you think may be interested and lastly If you want to learn more about writing fantasy, you can get access to classes on the likes of writing a novel, editing a novel, creating characters and world building, as well as books on writing fantasy, guides, blog posts, interviews and much more, all on Patreon, the link for which you can find in the description. Now it's time to get on with the show and I'm delighted to introduce our four panellists, Isa, Josh and Johnny and the brilliant Stephen Ion for a chat about world building. So thank you, everyone, for joining what is our first ever panel discussion group. Um, it's it's something that I've wanted to do for a while, um, but, you know, it's just time. It's a, fa- a big factor in most things, isn't it? Um, and, but I'm delighted to be joined by some brilliant members from our community, Isa, Josh, and Johnny. And you guys, I think, gave me the prod to do this one. So thank you very much for doing that. Um, how are you? Are you all getting on? Are you okay? All right. Very excited to be here. <laughs> very good. Um, and of course, we're very excited to welcome our very special guest, Mr. Stephen Arian. How are you doing, Steve? I'm good. Thanks, Richie. Thanks for having us. Oh, thank you very much for joining us. It means a lot to us that you, you've given up time. Obviously, you're, you're very busy scheduled to join us because we we all look up to writers like you. And <clears throat> I don't know about um, everyone else here, but I... I love to learn from people who are doing doing it the right way and doing doing it really well too so it's it's the best way to to get insights and panels i think they're a really interesting thing as well like the first ever one i went to was in fantasy con a few years ago and i learned so much and i think it's just because you get four or five perspectives rather than just one or two but yeah have you done quite a few panels then before steve uh, yes, yeah. So before I start, before I was published, I was going to conventions and panels the same as everybody else to learn as much as I could from other writers, listening to agents, editors, publishers, just everybody talk, and I just tried to soak up, soak up as much information as I could about writing books, the industry, publishing, all of it. Because as much as this is a creative thing, you have to have an awareness that is obviously a business, and you need to have some of that business acumen and at least a basic understanding of how it all works. And I think some writers, the, the dream for me, the goal was always to get an agent, get an agent. And then once I've got an agent, you get a contract. And then it's like, okay, how does all this work? So yeah. the more you know of that ahead of time, the more you are prepared. Um, and I think that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, 
one of the reasons that I, I wanted to do these panels is because you get a real insight into quite specific subjects. And I remember going to one quite on a, quite a similar subject that you mentioned there about how the industry's changed. And I had Adrian Tchaikovsky and Juliet McKenna on it. And he just explains so much that you wouldn't learn from reading like a blog post or whatever. Um, and yeah, it was, it was amazing. And I think what we'd like to do in this community anyway, there's about 350 of us now, it's grown very quickly, uh, is is do more of these kind of things and and real, get really insights on specific subjects. And one topic in particular um, that everyone loves is world building. But it's it's riddled with traps, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Um, and I've been reading The Judas Blossom which is Steve's new book coming out in a couple of months. And it is, the world is absolutely sensational just because it's so unlike anything I've read before. Um, and I think that's a good place to start. So Steve, do you fa fancy telling us a bit about it? Yeah, sure. So this was, I wanted to do a book that was very, very different and I wanted to challenge myself and it turned out to be the most difficult series I've ever written, which is <laughs> a problem for myself. Um, so this is a historical fantasy series. So all of the main events in the first book are historically accurate. They all happened. Who was there and the order and the timing has been changed for the purposes of the story. So there's a note in the front of the book, which you would have seen, Richie, that says, whilst I've tried to be, tried to honor history, I haven't been an absolute slave to it because it would prevent me sometimes from telling a dramatic story because sometimes wars in history will go on for like two three four years and that's that's a whole trilogy by itself i can't just have yeah. a book that's full of a trilogy so sometimes i'll sort of say you know this things and i skip over sections so that you know this major event has happened and then the story can carry on um so there's uh it's not a spoiler there's like a siege of a city in in the story at one point and that happened um all of the characters in the book, most of them are real people, but some of them are fictional. And sometimes we don't know very much about them from history. So I've said, right, there's a massive gap there. I'm going to extrapolate that and do something, complete my own, because we don't know. So historians would get upset. However, <laughs> it is historical fantasy. So there is um, some made-up stuff in there. There's some mild, fantastical elements. It isn't magic heavy. There aren't like non-human races because it is Earth and it is set in 1260. So it is very much our planet and stuff that's happened. But I've just added some kind of what-if scenarios and maybe. And then I've woven a story like a slalom skier hitting all these points in history. And that was incredibly difficult. So I don't know why I did it to myself, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great though. And, and like you say, it's it's taken something that's, you're sort of familiar with and then asking what if it seems to be the starting point doesn't it yeah yeah so i've, I've got a stack of, of books that i've read about this era um and it's I'd, some things i've used and some things i've ignored on purpose because the more roadblocks i put in place the more difficult it is for a reader to get into this world and if you're not familiar with it so as far as i know someone will probably correct me so as i know there are no other historical fantasy novels set in persia there's historical fiction there's historical fiction set in mongolia like, like i said a uh, con a golden has some guns some great historical um fiction stories that are as close to the truth as we know that he's added a bit of drama himself but there's none set in persia and there's none set in like the 13th century ever so nice. that was going to be a challenge. Um, and then people are going into this whole new world that they don't know anything about. And the more terms I add in, the more I, can, I feel it can knock someone out of the story. So I don't, and also like the language, I don't use modern yeah. phrases or, or, you know, slang or terms because I want people to feel like they're in this part of history. Um, there was one thing in the story which I took out where the proofreader said, this feels like a bit of anachronism. Someone's drinking a cup of coffee. Yeah, and then we started getting into debate of would there be coffee in 1260 in Persia, and would it have come over from South Africa? And, and that's like my dad, who is from the Middle East, and he's like, technically no. However, it could have come from Ethiopia and been imported. Yeah. I was like, you're right. 
Well, but it still feels awkward, so I've taken it out, and just you know, people are stuck drinking tea and so on. So there's, there's <laughs> things like that. It's getting the balance right. But the the book involves the Mongolians invading Persia, their occupation of it, and the stories about a rebellion fighting back from the inside. But there's lots of terms in Mongolian um, like warfare that I've removed on purpose. So there's a different term for someone that commands like 10 soldiers, 100, 1,000. So there are three new words I've got to throw in, and you won't know what that means. And if, every time I start doing that, so like think of like Peter Brett did it with The Warded Man. He started trickling in little words all the way through. And by the time he got to the fourth book, I had to keep flicking back to the glossary because I had yeah. no idea what some of these terms were. And I was like, I don't want that. I don't want people to keep like knocking themselves out the story. So I yeah. haven't used those terms. And I've used ranks in the army that people will understand because yeah. the, the majority of the readers, until it gets translated, will be English speakers, which means they're based in the West or they're English language speakers are based around the world or they're expats, you know. So I've kept things like lieutenant, captain, and you understand it's an army, you understand it's a rank. And they yeah. did have those ranks in Mongolian army in that period, but the word is different again. So like, how many terms do I add in before you're like, I don't know what's going on. I can't follow the story because I'm stumbling <laughs> all the time. Yeah. So finding that balance is tricky. Um, but it, it just it's just trial and error and getting proofreaders and beta readers to be like, I don't understand what this means. Yeah. I know, Josh, you, you had a, a question on the specific thing, didn't you? About how can you make your world unique without like making it too difficult? Yeah, just with thinking about it, when you have a whole other world, and it also applies to historical fantasy as well, how do you make it so that the reader can understand still and not have too much of a learning curve while making it different from Earth enough that it feels realistic? Because like, there wouldn't be Earth stuff in a fantasy world, right? Yes and no. <laughs> so here's the yes. Oh, well, okay. It's all about barriers again. In every fantasy book that you've ever read, anybody, what, are the, what kind of things do they eat if they go into a tavern? What kind of food do they predominantly eat? What kind of meat do they eat? Yeah? And if it's not our Earth, it's a fantasy world that you've completely created. Why are there chickens? Why are there cows? Why are there it wouldn't be anything. Why, why does it have to be that? Why aren't they yeah. eating flagonberries? And, and you start making up all these terms, and then, then people are there again going like, I don't know what's going on. So there's a <laughs> bit of sleight of hand where, one, everybody's speaking English, or at least you're reading it in English, unless you start introducing other languages and people have communication problems, and is that a facet of the story? If it's not, does it need to be there? Is the food a big thing? If it's not, you can add stuff to it, interesting spices, interesting things that you need for the story. Um, some people have had like certain flowers that grant certain abilities that they've made up rather than because they need it for the story. Like a certain flower that grows on a mountain that's really remote gives someone magic for 12 hours or whatever it might be. Or, you know, um, so there again, it's, if it's set in this earth, or your story's set in earth, what are you adding to it that makes it a little bit different? Is it non-human races? Because then... People love that. You get to describe that whole cloth. You get to kind of say, right, this is this thing. This is this race. This is what they look like. This is how they talk. This is how they walk. And people have to kind of get on board with it and from the way you describe it. But yet there's always sleight of hand where people yeah. just take things as written. They walk in and they have, they have a beef stew. And you're like, okay, I know what that means. Yeah. I don't have to explain it. Nice. Oh, is there you had a few points to ask on this one, didn't you? I like we sometimes gravitate towards like the set standard fantasy setting, right? Like middle ages. Uh, how can you build something different? But again, that is not too different as you have to explain every single bit. Or how can you change something in this standard setting, but it still make it work? For example, can I have books being something common in the middle ages? Does it work? Or how can I make this work, if that makes any sense? Yeah, so it's a version of our Earth, but you want to change something a little, a little bit. Yeah, because yeah, it's like a parallel Earth that's something a bit different. Yeah, as so you can, as long as you think of the repercussions, how it affects everything in society. And equally within a fantasy world, if you introduce something, you have to think about the repercussions of how it affects everything. 
Um, so have, has anybody read the Draconis Moria series by Anthony Bryant? No. Okay, so in that world, there are, there are I've, got, I've, I've read the first two books. In that world, there are dragons. And there's different kinds of dragons. But they're monetized in a way. So what they've discovered is they've um, discovered that if you imbibe a small quantity of blood from a dragon, it gives you a different, it gives you an ability. And depending on the color of the dragon, the breed essentially, it has a different effect. So that was kind of like the seed of his idea. And it could be Earth, but it's not. It's you know another planet. And then based upon that, he's then gone, right, what does that mean? So if the dragons live out in the wild somewhere, you have to have people that go out and hunt them, which means they have to be trained, they have to be mercenaries, they have to be skilled, they have to learn how to fight dragons and that. And then there's people who are like essentially the merchants who are paying for all of this and who are funding it. And then it, it sort of ripples out. It's got to the point where if you like over, overfish a river, all the, rich, all the fish die, and then you're kind of stuffed and you have to kind of wait for them to recoup and stuff. So they're getting to this point in this world where there are too many people going out being paid to go and get dragons to get this blood because it's an important commodity. So they're trying to raise them, they're trying to capture them, tame them, and raise them, like, you know, in pens, essentially, for the same purpose. But it doesn't work the same. The dragons aren't as fierce, and they aren't, it doesn't have the same quality. It's like, so every time he's put something in, he's thought about, what's the knock-on effect, and how does that affect the next thing? Yeah. So if it's magic, it's like, has everybody got it, or has nobody got it? Is it a few people? If it's everybody, how does that affect everything? Travel, food, and you just kind of... World building is fun. World building is brilliant. I love doing it. And you should look for the holes that people don't fall down when they're reading the story. But equally, you shouldn't spend 10 years world building and not writing the story. Some of these things you'll come to as you start working through the story, you'll be like, ah, I've just suddenly thought of that thing and that doesn't make sense now. And then you have to yeah. go away and think about it and someone can fill the plot hole. But yeah. you can change something and like set it in the history. So if you say, um, so, so my book's set in the 1300s. If I, if I introduced, I don't know, something, something really like, I was going to say astronomy, but astronomy was, quite, was already there and the rest of it to do with the weather and they were very aware of it. Well, if I introduced something from our time to the present, to, to the 13th century, how would it affect everybody? What would it be? Like, um, what's that Outlander? The the woman who travels back from modern day times yeah. to thing. I've not read the book, so I don't know this, but she has an advanced knowledge, surely, of medicine. So she yeah. goes back to the whatever period it is. How does that affect her? Well, people start to think she's a witch because they are using leeches, and she's like, no, no, it's germs. And they're like, what's a germ? We can't yeah. see them. We have to have them, you know, why, what do you mean I can't see them? And so then it's like, you know, <laughs> it's that constant thing of, okay, how does it ripple out? It's like dropping a, a pebble into a pond. How does it affect everything else? And you may not get everything, but you've got to just try and think it through as logically as you can. Like uh, like the, you, go the ahead. Thing, the things that we change, they have to matter. They have to like, impact the story. It somehow. has to be integrated. Like some one guy I was talking to saying, I've got these characters, got this stuff, and now I'm starting to do the world building. I'm like, they, well, they must be integrated. Yeah. Whatever the world is going to affect the characters and vice versa. That, it, it can't be separate. It has to be one thing. Um, otherwise, they're just two people sat in a room talking. What, you know, it's just a, on stage then. It's just like a theater thing. So it, it has to be integrated. Yeah. Johnny, yeah. what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's so interesting because, you know, the closer you keep it to an Earth-like planet, the, the easier it is. You can rely on that, right? Like, it's a tool that you can use what's already familiar yep. with people. Yep. So the more you get into, like, second world created fantasy, which is what I write, and it's really difficult because you want to bring people into the world. But like Steven says, you don't want them having to thumb through an appendix the whole time. You, like, want them immersed in the story. So you have to figure out... I use like a mashup technique usually, right? I take something that's going to be familiar enough to people and then change something about it to make it unique, right? So you, you can still use those things, but you can't say like a microwave. There, that doesn't exist, right? Or, you know, like coffee, like Stephen was saying. So you, you can change the color of it. You can change, you know, the texture of something or just think about how those things you, you can use them as tools, right? And it's a layering process. It's not going to happen in the first draft. I know all the time when I'm going back through first draft stuff, it's like 
it feels info dumpy because you're literally generating it as you write and that's okay but the more you can find ways to use your characters to introduce those things through thoughts or interactions um, rather than just explaining something it's the you know classic show don't tell but people forget that like just by having your characters interact with the world or thinking about the world or how things are you get some of that explanation in and you have yeah. to have readers tell you if it works or not like you're too close to the piece to know as you're creating it like if it's coming across or how it's confusing and you just have to, I think, be adaptable and not be so set in what you've created to not be willing to think about it differently or change it. If it's not working, you know, maybe you go more soft magic than a hard magic system. If it's easier for you to build that in, but if you want the hard magic system or, or something more complicated, you, you, it needs to make sense to you and it needs to make sense to the world, but that you don't have to explain everything about it to your reader, right? That's part of the, the mystery and you have to trust them to be smart enough to get it. But that is really the like fine line to, to write, I think, as a, as a second world, like epic fantasy writer is how much is too much, how much is not enough for them. But, you know, you'll get it in front of readers and you'll see what they gravitate towards or where they get caught up in. Ultimately, yeah. like Stephen was saying, you want to you want to take them on that journey with you, not have these elements take them out of of what the story. Yeah. So, what what do you guys think is the biggest trap that people can fall into when it comes to building the world? Who wants to start? Is it you want to start? I don't know because, like, my skills on world building. I'm still developing them, okay? <laughs> I still have a lot to learn. I tend to focus more on like characters and their conflicts and the word itself. Uh, but I think that's, that's more or less what Johnny was saying, like when it's too much and when it's too little, because it is fun building a world. It's so much fun. Yeah, but like, too, too much fun. <laughs> yeah, like when do you stop? You know, when it's enough, like, do I have to know every single nation and kingdom I know. That, that won't interact with my story? Like, or is it like enough if I just, I'm talking about these people here, so I'm just going to build around them. So I don't know, something like that. When, when figuring out where, what do you need, what you're missing, and when you have just too much and you're building stuff that you will not use later. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, what do you think? Yeah, I think that just, I'm going back almost to what Stephen was saying earlier about the ripple effect. I guess I'll call it that the ripple effect of changing one thing and seeing how that spreads out. I think that a big trap you can fall into is changing something too massive. Um, for example, if you change something like the astronomy of the world, like for example, in my story, I, my story has no moon or sun. Instead, there's these meteoric blazes. And the effects of that can be really massive. And so the ripple effect can be so large that it's too much of a learning curve. And so I think it's really important to not bite off more than you can chew and so or to limit your change so for example instead of trying i'll use my example of the meteoric objects the sun on earth provides heat right the right amount of heat temperature for us to live and so instead of going into the science of what temperature do these blazes or these meteoric objects have to be to make sure humans can live you just say it just does, or you <laughs> address it. Obviously not that bluntly, but you just create a solution that's much simpler than like the very scientific thing that is needed to actually make it full on realistic. And yeah. so I think that it's just really important to not take on more than you can chew. But what do you guys think about that? I mean, do you guys agree, disagree? Yeah, yeah I think that was, gonna... sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that the one thing I wrote down is like, don't get caught up in perfect. 
when you're starting to write, right? It, plausible is enough. Um, and don't get hung up on something that you that you can't figure out in the moment and keep writing the story. Like you have to trust your subconscious mind. will figure those things out as you like, sometimes you have to move forward to really figure out where you're going. And it's okay to just throw a bucket in here in there and be like, come back to this and figure out how it works with, you know, my, my world has two sons. So when you were talking about that, Joshua, it reminded me of when I realized like I was thinking about it wrong and it wasn't going to go one son and then the other son, like it needed, it was different. And it took me down this whole rabbit hole, but you can't let that stop you. Like you'll figure that stuff out and you'll find out it'll work into the world in your next edits and, and perfect it. And, you know, just don't get bogged down in because it can feel overwhelming right to be like oh cool i just casually have to create an entire universe where everything functions perfectly and i understand every facet of society <laughs> and you know how everything works but you don't you just need to know enough so that your story makes sense and that it's fun and the rest you can explore so like don't yeah don't let that get you caught up because I've been there before where you just build a roadblock for yourself and you get caught figuring out how you're going to make some, you know, something work. But there are parts of my story that I'm even now just fleshing out in my like third draft, right? That, Oh, this is how this is going to work. Like you'll get an idea later on for something. So don't let it stop you from getting the story out, but it does need to be at least plausible, but not perfect. It's okay. Nothing. It's not going to be perfect. A, a good way to start is because someone's asking a question about where do I start with world building. Yeah, that's a really good question. Rather than go, you know, start thinking about, oh, I'm going to have three suns and 12 moons and, and then, you know, I draw a map and complicate things. It's just like before you get to any of that, because people always want to see a map. And there again, the, the difficulty is the more you draw in, the more you fill in. At some point, even if you never touch it in that story, you then locked yourself in and you if you ever do any stories in that same world again, you're like, oh, I'll go over here and there's going to be an ocean. Oh, wait, there's a massive landmass. I can't do that. <laughs> so what some people do is they make one or two small changes and have an, an Earth-like world as your basic platform. So assume there's 365 days. Assume there's one sun and one moon. And if they're not important to the story, you don't really talk about them. You just kind of mention them in passing. And that's it. You don't need to worry about it. But you could change one thing. And this is something that R.J. Barker has done in his stories. So if you've read the Tide Child trilogy, which starts with the bone ships, he's changed one major thing in the world in that there's no wood anywhere. So all of the ships in the world are made from the bones of dragons to the point where, like I said, talked before about with the dragons in Anthony Ryan's, they've killed all of the dragons and used their bones to make ships. And now there's no more dragons, or there's no more ships. So they have to maintain the ones they've got and look after them. But the, this isn't a spoiler, this is the start of the first book. The story begins with someone has sighted a dragon for the first time in like, I don't know, 100 years or whatever it is. And these aren't flying dragons. These are like 300 foot sea serpent dragons, like that kind of size dragon. Yeah. So suddenly, there's your, there's your kicking off point. So there is other changes to society. There's other changes to other things he's brought in there's a like a, there's a non-human race that has a minor role but more or less it it feels like earth in that there's just humans and there you know there's pirates and there's swords and you know quarreling families and then you know he starts to change things like one i think it's one society is built on a matriarchy so the mother's rule and the ants and so on and trick so he, but he started with that one thing of there's no wood anywhere in the world what, what does that mean? Right. All the buildings yeah. are made from stone and this and that, and then ships, right. Right. Bones, dragon bones. And then off you go. And so just with that, you can start playing around with it, thinking about the knock-on effects and start building your story in that world. You don't have to start thinking about the 12 suns and the 15 moons and how does that <laughs> affect the tides and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just start playing around with the, a version of earth. And then when you get into it, you can start thinking about, right, well, who do they pray to? Is it, is it one god? Is it multiple gods? Are there no gods anywhere? Is it, is it kind of, you know, older stuff? What, how does that affect people's beliefs? If there's no beliefs, what does that mean? And it's, so it's, it's just, but start with the story. Start with the character. Start with a small change to an Earth-like world and then see what happens. That's a really, really good point, yeah. I, that, I love that idea as well, just getting rid of one main thing, like no woods. Yeah, that's really good, clever. 
So a yeah. question that we've had from our community is it ties into themes and if you're writing with like a message in mind. And how can you use your world and your setting to really enhance that? And it, it is it's quite an interesting thing. I mean, I see it a lot in stories where if it's like the end of times or it's the threatening of the end of times, then the, it usually be set in autumn. And uh, there'll be dying leaves on the floor and stuff like that, that, that kind of thing. Um, have you guys come across any stories or do you employ anything like this when you're writing? Um, Steve, what about you? Do you want to start? So using the world as kind of to feature into the story. To build your themes. I don't often use the world necessarily to, as part of the theme. It might come out later. Sometimes yeah. I know what the theme of the story is going in, and sometimes I don't. I have I have the characters, I have the plot, I have an idea of the story, but I don't know what the theme is. And sometimes I do, it depends. And when you finish that first draft, you can then look back and often see what you're actually talking about. Yeah. Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it isn't. Um, it, it depends on the project. It really depends from, from one to the other. Yeah. Um, I can give you examples, but it just changes from different series for me. Yeah, I suppose it just depends on the kind of story you want to tell, doesn't it? Yeah, and I always said not every book has to be deep and life-changing and it's yeah. going to make you go away and sit in a dark room and think, you know. <laughs> some books, some TV shows, some films are just fun. They're entertaining. They're there for distraction. They're there for amusement. They're there to lift your spirits and have a good time. And there's nothing wrong with any of that because we all want fun, you know. It doesn't have to be something that's challenging the stage. So there can be. Any book can be about any of that, but it doesn't have to be. So it depends upon what kind of storyteller you want to be within that book. Yeah, I think I'm going to take a bit of a unique angle on that. I think that was really good. I'm guessing that most of you guys have played board games at some point in your life. Yeah, And there's a thing about board games. There's two different parts to a board game. There are the mechanics of the board game, so like how the rules work and how the game functions. Then there's the theme or setting of the game. And so what is it set in? Um, For example, I'm guessing that most of you guys have heard of Monopoly. And so the mechanics of the game are like you have to rent houses and stuff and own properties. But the theme or setting of the game that takes place on almost a block or like a city block, and you're all people that own monopolies. And so I think that translates really nicely into your story. So like Stephen was saying, you can start a story with thinking about either, I guess we can translate mechanics to plot um, or like characters and stuff like that. That would be the mechanics of a story. And sometimes you have a really good plot idea or a character idea or even almost a setting idea. Or you can have just a message that you want to send to your reader and you want to write a story around that. And sometimes you have one before the other. But I think a really good way to incorporate the two together is you think about how your world will influence situations that the character will be in, right? How will your setting or mechanics influence where the reader will go and therefore or where the character will go and therefore the reader the character in the plot will go and so for example if you i'm just gonna this is a pretty silly theme but if you're trying to deal with people being afraid of lava right and be like you shouldn't be afraid of lava which is pretty stupid by the way you should be afraid of lava <laughs> um you can set your planet or you can make your planet a volcanic world um, and that's a very like dumbed down version of what I'm talking about. But if you make your story about a volcanic world, your characters are most likely going to have to deal with lava, right? And so yeah. to expand that out to other stories that you're wanting to write. And I mean, do you guys agree with what I'm saying or do you guys have different thoughts? I agree. I like my whip, my work in progress. It's a female protagonist and she deals with a bunch of conflict, but the main comes from the world, which is uh, a patriarchal, patriarchal, this is a hard word to say. (laughs) 
it's based on patriarchy and it's a misogynist kind of word. So it's definitely like directly impacting her story. If you're looking for um, example, I think Neverwhere from uh, by Neil Gaiman does this very well. So his team, he's working with people, homeless people. That's where the story came from. That's the theme. People who fell from the cracks into the cracks of London. And he built a world with these people who kind of like got left behind. So it's a whole world based on the theme of being homeless and forgotten. Yeah. And I think that's just brilliant. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. That is amazing. <laughs> the other thing I'll just add quickly is that there's my, my, one of my friends said this there's the story and there's what the book is about. A lot of readers, some readers, let's say that, will get the story, they won't get what the book is about. And you can't do anything about that. When people yeah. get it and they like contact you and like, oh, what well, this means about this, and it's fantastic. Some people just read and go, yeah, that was fun, it was a fun adventure. I'm like, mm. Anything else? They're like, nope. I'm like, all right, okay, fine. I don't get, I don't get paid any extra. You bought the book, I win. If you got more stuff from it, that'd be even better. But it doesn't change the the, the sale price. So you can only write the kind of story that you want to write, and hope that people get beyond the surface. They scratch beyond the surface. Some, to some readers just aren't built that way, and they just won't get it. Yeah, and it's kind of you just have to kind of accept it and just be like, fine. Fine. I know there's I know there's more stuff there. But. Yeah. It's the best of filters follow, especially when you get the one or two star reviews. <laughs> Don't see the fight in this. Went over my head. Johnny, what do you think? I think it's interesting because for me, like on my writing journey, and I've like been building in the same world for um, twenty years now. So like it it just takes time, but getting to the themes really like because for me, I wanted, I, I realized that what my story was missing was like a part of me and diversity and all of that. And it really started influencing how I changed my world building. So like I had a species of kind of tree-like dryad people, but I had gendered them. And I was like, they probably don't have genders, they're trees. Like, and that made more sense for the story for me, you know? So like, it was a fun for me to explore those things and get to like, put those parts of me that were important in it. So if you're writing to a theme that's obviously important to you at the beginning of it, like find ways for that to come through authentically in the work and make your work something different. And I think that people will really gravitate towards that authenticity and that piece of you that you've put into it and it's going to feel more real and it's going to feel more layered and deep because you know those themes are underneath of it it doesn't have to be you know you don't need to hit them with the face theme like they should be feeling those things as they go through the story and and discover the world with your characters and you know um like steven said you don't have to do it sometimes it just needs to be fun it just needs to be exciting but if that's the story that you're trying to tell, like lean into it and, and let it shape the world that you're trying to build. Cause we have that luxury as, as fantasy authors that we can play anywhere on that spectrum between, you know, classic fantasy setting and something, you know, that could really change the way people think about the world around them, you know, and it's okay to be anywhere on that spectrum, but if it's important to you, then like lean into it and, and find out what it means for those characters and, and your world. My dog wants to be on the panel too. <laughs> yeah, that's a really yeah. good point you make. Yeah, because I was chatting to Denise Crittenton on the show, and she wanted to. She's an Afrofuturist writer, and she wanted to create a world in which everyone was black, white wasn't a thing. And I thought that was brilliant—a brilliant example of creating the world that you want. Um. So yeah, there's a question now that we've had quite a few people mention and sort of allude to uh, in various forms. Um, and it's a bit of a, an awkward one, I think, when it comes to writing. I was chatting to a guy yesterday about it, and he was having a lot of trouble getting his head around this, is when you're editing and there's a lot of material in there, let's say. <laughs> um, stripping it back is it can be quite a difficult task and 
I know I've been in this position before, um, where you you feel like you can't. You feel like the reader has to know this information that they, they just can't work it out for themselves. This is ha- this has to go in here, um, and you just end up info dumping essentially. And it's it's, it's you're not trusting the reader. There's no sort of relationship of trust between you and the reader, and in the end, you just t- end up telling them everything and spewing it all out. And he was just having a really difficult time accepting that he has to take that out, or he should consider taking it out to make it a bit more interesting and streamlined. And I'm just wondering, because it seems like it it's it difficult. It's obviously you've 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 uh, created all these wonderful details, and you just want to get them in and show the world how how great this place is. Um, how do you overcome that? Have you been in this situation before, and, and what have you used to sort of turn off your feelings and <laughs> just cut it all out with the vicious red pen? Well, I haven't done a lot of editing. Um, I'm working on my first novel right now. And so I haven't finished the first draft yet. But this is just an idea I had. And feel free, you guys, to completely smash me on this. But uh, I thought it would, a good way to do it, if you really want to get this information to the reader, why not create a history novella of your world? So, like, just create, a, like, a whole different document, and you can put as much world-building detail as you want into it and have it as either a glossary in the back of your book or, like, a little snippet or just a whole other thing that you can put on, like, your website for, like, fans that like your book and want to read more about, learn more about your world can read. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good way because then you're not, like, completely divorcing yourself from all these fantastic, juicy world-building details but you're also not clogging up your story. Also, I want to add in really quick. Wendy um, has a question that's a bit long, and I was thinking maybe after we finish this question, we could ask Colin. Oh, definitely, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Nice. I'm currently in that place right now with my writing group where we're going through, and I'm really using them because I know that's something that I needed to do, and I've always been aware of that, but... Um, I actually did what Joshua said. It's a whole other document. It might be published as an appendices or, you know, its own standalone or be a freebie online, but also make a cut doc where you dump all of those things into, and it makes it easier because you're not just like deleting them into the ether. Like they're there if you want to go back to them and add them, but make sure that they're doing something for your story and for the plot and not just for you to share that information. Like make sure whatever it is is serving a purpose in the narrative and if you can do it through discovery or through action like think like a director you know and it's okay to hone in on some of those small things and the little details will make it feel more fleshed out than it actually is and you do need to trust your readers to make inferences about the world from what you're presenting them but yeah keep it tight don't be afraid to chop that stuff out it's just gonna it's going to keep people from getting to that point where they want to know everything about your story, right? So get that red marker out and go ham. But just, you know, leave a pile of, of bodies on the side that you can resuscitate as needed. It'll make you feel better about chopping them out. <laughs> I think part of the joy of doing world building is, is I create like a world Bible that has a lot of this extra information in and it exists as a separate thing. And you might only find out 10% of it in the story, but the rest of it still is there. And like, like Johnny said, if it doesn't serve the purpose and it doesn't come up in the plot, it shouldn't be there. I'm not, you know, if I say that the, the coins are called shecks instead of pounds, and that's it, I'm not going to give you a 10-page thing on why they're called shecks unless it comes up and someone says, well, why are they called shecks? But then why they already know that. Why would someone ask someone else, why do you call it that? So it, there's no point that, you know, I've written a 10-page thing that explains it was based upon this emperor and blah, blah, blah. I don't care. The reader doesn't care. It's a, yeah. it's a tiny detail in the story. That isn't <laughs> the story unless the main character is fascinated with coins for some reason. You know, it's one of these things that some authors have really, really big doorstep of books. And I like some of them. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it and they aren't good. But I feel in my own writing, I don't want that. I, yeah. I'm bored. If I'm bored writing it, it's going to be boring to read. So I'd rather have stuff in there that serves the plot, serves the characters, and makes the world feel a little bit different 
without just bogging down the pace. Um, because you're, you know, all know there's so many distractions these days from everything for people's time. So you're constantly yeah. fighting. And sometimes it is nice to soak into a book and just be absorbed by it. A lot of people aren't built that way. They just want to read a book and have a good adventure and feel like it's a different place. So you do a charcoal sketch of a character and they fill in the blanks themselves in their own mind. Every version of every other character in every book is slightly different because it's based upon the version that you've created in your mind. It's different to mine. It's different to everybody else's. So it's have your world Bible, have it somewhere else. If you then want to do some other cool stories that explores a different part of the world that doesn't feature in the main novel as a separate novella, great. You've got all that detail. It's already set up. Have fun with it. Build out the world. Um, like Ryan Cahill has done a novella. He has like the first novella that's free and then the main novel. That might have a bunch of stuff that's not directly linked to that first book. You don't have to read it, but you could. But it gives you a whole bunch of extra stuff. So there's there's different ways now with you know self-publishing and even uh, being a hybrid author to to do that and have more stuff set within the same world. Um, what about the, um, the Expanse books? They did a bunch of novellas, have background stuff on all the characters. So yeah. one of the main characters, we find a little bit about him that he used to work in a brothel, blah, blah. And then there's a story that they've released about his early years, about growing up in Unearth, what it was like for him. But I didn't need to know any of that for the main plot to follow the story. We just told about it in passing. But if you want to go back and read that thing, you can now, but it's not it's not necessary. Yeah. It's great, isn't it? As you, you're sort of going through and you're, you're seeing all these potential avenues that you can go down and it's not like just knowing, I suppose, it's like, I'm going to save that one for another time. Whether you'll ever get to it is, is another matter. <laughs> and I also think it matters like the subgenre that you're writing in fantasy, because if you're writing like high or epic fantasy, your readers will expect more information on the world. Yeah. They won't mind. They are actually like they want it. But if you're writing in maybe some other subgenre, they will be more interested in the characters so you can move more quickly. Uh, I do think what Steven said is like the thing. If you have to describe something, uh, only if it matters for the character. So he wouldn't describe the coin unless the character is like fascinated by coins and it matters for them. So you only show. And if you have to show, how do you show it? Um, why does it matter to your character? Why is he noting them? And, and why is he like actually looking at it and thinking about it? And then it makes sense instead of just out of the boom. So it could be really minor. Like if someone looks at a coin and someone else remarks on it and says, the king's just died. Oh, I see they printed a new coin. They got through that pretty quickly. You're like, oh, right. So someone's been deposed and straightway they've reprinted the coins to kind of move. Uh, that's an interesting detail that adds to the world. It tells you something. And you move on. I don't tell you how the coins were made, and what it's you know, just. I don't need to know. Like if it's important to the plot and the change of government and power, great. Then you move on. The rest of it, I don't care. And I don't think readers do most of the time. Yeah, I think Stephen really nailed it there because I was going to say as Ezo was talking, I think it's about the economy of words. You can do a lot with a little bit. You know, you can give people a little slice, a little, uh, you know, I call them breadcrumbs or something, like, you know, that makes you feel like there's more there. It's the tip of the iceberg. They don't need to know what's under the iceberg, but just knowing that it's there, it's going to make your world feel more fleshed out. And so those things are important. We don't, you know, you don't want to gut your world of those things because what's going to make it feel unique. But don't feel like you need to do a 10 page <laughs> um, thing about the coins. You know, it's a perfect example that you can. He did it in two lines there. You know, it's probably like <laughs> 25 words and you got a lot there. So it's, you know, use use those details. But the economy of, of words is super important and you can you can do it. Just find fun ways to do it. And they'll they'll pop into your head at silly times. You're like, oh, this is where I could put this in there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think like one thing that I saw from Emily in a question about when we like address really big things and really big changes about world building and the reader doesn't know, but all the characters would and wouldn't really think about talking about it. What Stephen brought up sort of sparked this idea in me. Why would you talk about the coin unless you're a coin enthusiast? Or like if it doesn't matter to the plot, only a coin enthusiast would talk a lot about coins. So for your story, either have your main character be very interested in that piece of world building or a side character that they talk to. And that's a really great way to get a lot of information. Um, like, for example, 
any of you have read Steelheart, the Steelheart series by Brandon Sanderson, he does this very well where the main character is a nerd about all the superheroes. And he just describes them in detail because he's a nerd. He's a super nerd. Yeah. And so have a super nerd for your world building in your story. <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah. I, I can't remember which. I, I don't know if it's um, EJ Beaton's The Counselor or something. Or one of them. I can't remember which one it is. But they were, the main character is like a food taster. So therefore, they know everything about food and poisons. So therefore, you're going to get information about plants and poisons and what they smell like and what they would initially taste like because it's important to the plot. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be in there and she wouldn't have this kind of detail in. So there again, whether it's coins or poisons or whatever it is, you've added to the world. If it serves the purpose, have it in. Otherwise, mention it in passing and move on. Nice. Great. Uh, I think that's... uh... Think about all the questions I've got. Has anyone got any other questions, Steve? Can we call on Wendy. Um, oh yeah, so yeah, Wendy's question. question. Yeah. Hi, can you hear me? Okay. Hello, Wendy. Hi, how are you? And um, I never do these on my phone, so uh, I apologize. <laughs> um, oh, there I am. Okay. Um, I'm sorry for the long question. Um, I'm writing a historical fantasy, and you mentioned the thing about the coffee which got me thinking, um, I, it's, it's a Norse fiction, uh, historical fantasy. And so I'm doing um, a lot of research on uh, Norse mythology and Viking life, things like that, to, to, to really give my, my story the um, feeling of the, the, the Norse life to make it richer um, and more believable. However, I, in this particular book, I'm not mentioning, like, it all takes place in the village over 12 days, and, well, 13 days, actually, but um, I'm not mentioning the name of the village, I'm not mentioning this is in, this is in Norway, or Iceland, or Greenland, or, you know, any of the places where Vikings uh, were uh, established, it do you think that that's a problem? I'm, I'm mentioning mythology, um, you know, the way, some things about the way of life. But I, I didn't think that those were, they had to be in the story. So I'm just wondering, because it is a historical fantasy, but it is a fantasy. So I'm writing it. You see what I Yeah. <laughs> I'm having such a hard time putting my question in. Into, oh, I think we um, understand it there. Yeah, Steve, oh, you're the good. historical fantasy. Well, yeah. I'm doing it now. So <laughs> th- think about it. If you're pitching your book to someone like you've just done to us, what year is it set in, roughly? <laughs> I don't know. Or what century, I... even, based upon the yeah. technology um, that they're using? Yeah, there, there's no technology. It's all swords and, um, yeah, sorry. you know. I mean, in terms yeah. of you know, the technology of the, of the era, of the period that it's set in. Yeah, I, I haven't worked that out. Okay. But, um, it's, it's, it's ancient Norse, so. So you do know which, roughly which country it's set in? <laughs> if it's not, so no, the, the reason I asked yeah, is. Norway, uh-huh, Norway. Um, okay. So when you're pitching this book to someone, when someone walks into a bookshop and they pick it up and look at the back, the only reason you need to know a little bit of that, and it doesn't have to be in the story or described, is in the back it will say, 1160 Norway, Johnny the Viking, blah, 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 goes and does this, he's fighting, blah, and that's, that's it. You don't need to say anything else. It doesn't need to pop up because someone's not going to turn to someone else and go, well, now that we're in 1260, it's quite an interesting year. Yes, it is. Yeah, it doesn't need to be that. So in the front of my uh, Judas Blossom, um, okay, there you go. In, in chapter one, it says part one, chapter one, 1260. And then we start the story. I don't, I don't, and the fact the back of the book says 1260 Persia. And off we go. So yeah. that, that dictates the technology, that dictates the, the temperature, the belief system and everything else that you've done your own research that will feature into that. So you give people like, like John was saying, the breadcrumbs. So whether it was a Bronze Age story or, or a, you know, modern story or whatever it is, that will dictate the technology, the weapons, the society, everything. And the country will give people clues. And that's all you kind of need to do. So work out roughly what century it is, <laughs> depending on what kind of weapon. You could just say 
7th century Norway. And that's it. You don't need to worry about anything else then. The historians can have as much fun as they want looking up stuff and saying you've got it wrong, except that it's fantasy, so it doesn't matter. Um, So (laughs) let them have a hissy fit. It doesn't matter because it's fantasy. So (laughs) just work out roughly where and when, roughly. And then and then okay. forget about it. And don't stress mm. about that. Just tell the story that you want to tell. Okay. Nice. That's what I needed to know. Thank you Good. so much. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, on, Wendy. Thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, we've got a question here from Graham. Um, short of it is, how do you find unique angles when it comes to building worlds, and specifically magic systems? Anyone got any advice to share there? I've built a lot of magic systems for my worlds. <laughs> um, I like I, I think the mashup me- method is is best. Like take some things that you really like and and you can put them together. You know, let like nature is lit. Be curious about science and the world that we live in too. Because a lot of times you might be inspired by that. Like some of my best fantasy world building ideas have come from you know, nature and science documentaries and learning about the world that we live in and just how, you know, our own perspective sometimes keeps us from understanding like how bees communicate or how, you know, the mycelial network works. Like all those things are so fascinating and can just really differentiate, you know, your world or using, you know, like Steven just did, a lot of authors are doing it. A lot of editors and agents are asking for worlds that are not based on, you know, the standard, um, you know, Western fantasy worlds. So like, look at different cultures. Like I, there's a website called Encyclopedia Mythica, where you can look up different myths and legends and creatures and stuff from around the world and from like cultures in Africa and the Middle East and Asia that maybe you might not be as familiar with. And you can find some really cool stuff by just staying curious. And, you know, you might discover something really resonates with you or fits really well into your world and just steal it. Like it's fantasy. Everything is stolen. You don't need to worry about borrowing ideas from things or you want to, you know, you don't want to appropriate a culture or anything like that, but using those things as inspiration is smart. It's going to make it identifiable to your readers. It's going to give you those tools to already, you know, like I have a race that's kind of a mashup between like Naruto and samurais and an empire, you know, and it's fun. Like, just let it be fun. Let it be. And and those are all, you know, not original things that, but fantasy is all borrowed. So, you know, don't be afraid to borrow from things that you like and that speak to you and, you know, find just, small ways to twist them that will that will make them feel unique whatever yeah. your interests are so if you think about adrian tchaikovsky his first so he loves insects that's his one of his hobbies he loves bugs they're just his thing he digs them a lot of his stories have them in yeah. his first 10 book fantasy series is called shadows of the apt and all of the different races are based upon insects and therefore each race has a different magical ability based upon their race so the ant race essentially are all telepathic each hive can communicate each ant within that whole hive can talk amongst themselves which makes them and then you think about what does that mean so when you fight they're a nightmare because they're all coordinating all the time and if there was a breach they can immediately patch it they don't need to shout the orders they just tell each other telepathically you've got the bee kingdom who've got this kind of like sting but it's quite dangerous you've got the wasp kingdom you do it all the time because that's how yeah. wasps are and you've got <laughs> spider kingdom you've got mantis kingdom it's just like and he starts spinning off all these cool ideas, all just based upon the fact of things that you can relate to based upon um, insects, because that's his thing. So whatever the thing is that you're into, or several things, like Johnny was saying, mash them together and go off and have fun. Just just have a good time with it. Yeah. Like, my piece of advice on this set thing is that, let's say specifically what you said about your magic system with the gems, right? And Brandon Sanderson, the Stormlight Archives, talking about his magic system with the gems. My recommendation is ask questions about it. Like, for example, where did the gems come from? That can change everything. How, like, because that will change the quantity of the gems, how easy they are to get, uh, how easy they are to acquire. And then you can ask, how do the gems store the magic? Like, come up with insane ideas, because insane ideas are usually the best ideas. 
mm-hmm. but just come up with crazy ideas. Like, what if instead of the gems like showing light, becoming light when the stone when they um, get magic, what if they get dark? Right, that's just a twist. Right, if you just twist something, it'll automatically become different. If you just keep twisting it, eventually it's going to be something new. Right, just take it farther and farther and farther. And there are going to be stupid ideas. I mean, that's just how it is. Um, you just got to throw those out or see them for another story. But eventually, you're going to have something that's so different and unique that maybe it started from the same base, but you've changed so many things that it'll be very fascinating. And I would also argue like there's a lot of magic in our world, you know, like uh, the name of the wing uses a type of magic that it's sympathetic, sympathy, and it actually like a real life kind of magic. Like people used to believe in sympathetic links uh, between things that were similar. So we like every prayer is kind of like a little spell. So you can look at the magic that it exists. And I'm saying this very loosely, guys. Please don't be mad at me. But like mm-hmm. those wonders that we find in real life and apply to our magic system. And also like technology. Technology can yeah. be magical. Like a lot of technology is magic. Like uh, if someone just came from the past and look at a TV, look at what we are doing now. Yeah. This is magic, right? So you can have mirrors that you can communicate with people like Zoom, like a Zoom meeting. <laughs> and that's a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah, isn't it Arthur C. Clark who said any sufficiently advanced technology will look like magic? I think that's what he said. It's something I'm paraphrasing, but you know. Yeah, this is like that. <laughs> that's sci-fi, right? <laughs> that's just the sci-fi genre, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's all magic. Well, well yeah, so uh, there's a cool middle ground between there too, you know, and you you don't have to like you don't have to explain like look at you know I, I think most people are familiar with you know the series Game of Thrones Song of Fire and Ice all of that he hardly explains anything he just literally is like uh, yep and she hatched three baby dragons and stepped out of the fire unscathed like you never understand how any of the magic works the faceless men you kind of get an idea you know like no no spoilers there but like none of it is explained so if you're not gonna have it like be explained make it so cool that nobody cares right (laughs) even even like the seasons right they have like long seasons summers the last years and winters like nobody's questioning how that works with earth moving away (laughs) people that are can figure it out and tell you how it should have been you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Unless it's an important thing of the story. So has anyone yes. read um, like Great Grey Sister, the trilogy by Mark Lawrence, um, something of the ancestor? Um, this isn't a spoiler. It's part of the story. The whole planet is freezing over. And the only thing um, that's keeping a strip around the world livable where some people live is this kind of advanced technology that if you take a step back from the story and you think about it, you realize it's some kind of satellite that's reflecting light from the sun onto this planet that keeps it the, the ice back and they oh, they start I have scra- read it. yeah so the, the characters don't really understand it but we as readers kind of get a little bit more because of who we are and what you know what century we live in now but it's a fascinating view and that's an aspect of a story but it's not the whole story so that kind of thing and it seems like magic to them as we're going you know it's just a satellite with like a, <laughs> a panel and a dish and it's reflecting and yeah all right okay sure let's say it's magic yeah yeah, cool. yeah. yeah. i have kind of mentioned a bit about that with cannons so like, yeah, so like I always loved the description of uh, in med- from medieval times of cannons being these tubes of thunder because no one knew what the hell they were and they made noises yeah. like thunder. That's what they could only liken it to the sounds that they were what? familiar with, um, and, and they were absolutely cool. useless. They didn't hit anything, but they were <laughs> they were quite uh, impactful in getting people to turn and run. So um, and that's, and I, you know, I just and that's fun to Yeah, it's fun to explore too. Like you think about how people explained science throughout all the different ages and the different, you know, e- e- the origin stories around the world are just like you know so fascinating. From you know being under a, a turtle's back, and then you've got the <laughs> whole you know Greek pantheon, and and you know, and then they kind of like 
shifted it. The Romans, like, you know, there's all this crossover and intermingling and stuff that happens. So look at history for inspiration, too, if you're stuck in your own fantasy world or if you're writing in a historical fantasy world you know get get into that some of that history and you'll find a lot of really fun things you know to play on and and ask people ask an expert you'd be surprised who would actually respond and reach out to you if you you know look up professors of you know certain types of history or something that have public facing um, you know, social media or emails, a lot of people will get back to you or answer a couple questions or set up their time. So just stay curious, I think is important. Nice. That's a good point to end. Staying curious. Thank you very much, everyone. This has been really, really interesting. I've, uh, I've learned an awful lot. And like I say, you, you benefit from everyone's perspectives on things. So thank you very much. And thank you, uh, especially to Stephen, um, being our special guest for our first one. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Cheers, man. When's the uh, the the next big novel out? Uh, Judas Blossom comes out on the 11th of July. Book one nice. of the new trilogy. I'm going to write in book three at the moment. So there you go. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll put a link in the description um, in the Discord chat. Sorry, um, for anyone who wants to pre-order. Well, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. It's uh, it means a lot to to have someone like you to co- uh, come along and, and answer our questions and help us. So thank you very much. Pleasure. A huge thank you again, Stephen, for giving up your time. Obviously, very, very busy schedule to chat with us all about world building. Thank you to Josh, Isa, and Johnny too for your fantastic inputs. And don't forget, if you want to come to the next live panel event, then just click the link in the description to join our Discord server. It's happening on the 25th of June at 7.30pm British summertime. If you go to Discord, you'll find the event there. And it's with science fiction and fantasy literary agents Laura Bennis. So if you've got any questions about working with an agent, querying an agent, writing a query letter, working with publishers and how the publishing industry works is one of the best opportunities to get the answers. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to follow or subscribe so you don't miss any more. And if you've really enjoyed it, a quick share on social media or with anyone who you think may be interested goes a long way. And we appreciate it an awful lot. So thank you very much. And lastly, if you want to learn more about writing fantasy, check out our Patreon page where you can find loads of interesting resources, tools, workshops, interviews, and much, much more. And that is all for today. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back on the 14th of June for another brand new episode. And until then, keep on scribbling.